You're back in the studio after a weeks-long sojourn. I'm going to call you a rubber tramp. You're getting in and out of a car. Yeah, a rubber tramp. Yeah, that's what they say. That's what they call people who are on the road in the car a lot, rubber tramp. Oh, you you and these old-school, old-school things. That sounds like something different, a rubber tramp. Like mm-hmm. like some sort of person that's promiscuous, except that they always use a condom, though. A rubber yeah, tramp. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. <laughs> but if you walked it, like if you were somebody thumbing your way along, then you'd be a leather tramp. Okay. I've met some leather have you aficionados <laughs> okay hello everyone hey uh for this week's downbeat scott we're just gonna go ahead and discuss what the people are discussing so we're done with the baby what did uh psalm one say abortion that's kind of problematic <laughs> i'm i would have did, i would have been disappointed if nobody went there <laughs> anyway so he was at uh rolling loud the other week saying some crazy things. Let's listen. You didn't show up today with HIV, AIDS, any of them deadly sexual transmitted diseases that'll make you die two, three weeks, put a cell phone light in the earth. Lady, your smell like water. Put a cell phone light in the earth. Fellas. Lights up. Fellas, if you ain't sucking in the parking lot, put your cell phone lights in the earth. Very, very problematic stuff just so that we're not leaving anyone behind you know he was saying put your cell phone light in the air we don't have lighters anymore so basically his form of call and response to be problematic out there Lollapalooza has said okay so this is enough wait wait what'd you call it what did i call what what festival has had enough Lollapalooza. Well, Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza. Yeah. Okay. My, I don't. I don't go to y'all's things. Uh, <laughs> they're done. They they've uh, canceled the baby. The bookings are drying up. <laughs> what do you think? Will the people follow Lollapalooza's uh, example? There. Well, um, I'm supposed to say Lollapalooza. Help Lollapalooza. Me now. Okay. Lull. Well, will they uh, follow Lollapalooza's lead and also, uh, you know, distance themselves from the baby? Or do you think, you know? This this doesn't really matter. The conversation's happening. All Did day. you didn't you say that the unedited version is out there somewhere? Somewhere, and, and it's interesting how what everyone is talking about is so hard to find <laughs> on the internet. That's how the hearsay uh, comes around. But anyway, see, because the bleeps threw me off. To be honest with you, I had to listen several times to get the gist of what he was saying so basically you know, he's saying a, if you if you uh don't right. have aids shout out to you women if you're mm-mm, evan doesn't like that word if you're mm-mm, smells like water <laughs> shout out to you fellas if you're not in the parking lot sucking dick i got shout it out now. To, you know the, well just for the right. just in case the people didn't get it so anyway as i originally asked lala palooza said okay that he is acting wild right now we need to distance ourselves will that matter at the end of the day are, are the people gonna stop buying his records and stop streaming his music you told me that there is a reason that 50 cent reached out to him because 50 cent is our problematic bay you know <laughs> okay so that leads me to believe that you know 50 cent is still doing his thing yeah, there were other rappers his, who came sure, to his, sure. you know, so, to his help too, T.I. Um, I, I think there's an audience for it. There are people out there who will seek him out for that now. Mm. 
Don't yeah, you that's think? Really, yeah, that's really a shame. It's really a shame that, you know, these things are, are so uh, ingrained in the community that, mm -hmm. you know, these folks and Katie, shout out to Katie over at uh, Classically Black. You know, she said that DaBaby uh, due in part because he's a man is never really going to have to pay for certain things because, you know, men get away with everything, especially men mm. with, a, with a little money. I mean, there's no way to misinterpret this. He went on the apology tour, uh, you know, saying stuff like, oh, well, you know, it was gay folks in the audience and the, the gay folks who are my fans are classy and they do X, Y, and Z, and, you know, but there's really no way to misinterpret what he said. It's it's mm -hmm. very shameful. And mm. I'm, I'm not streaming his music anymore. We're going to talk a little bit about canceling cancel culture today, but I'm that that that's a bit much. And there's no reason for me to be streaming the music of someone who is, who is talking and acting like that. I agree with you. Have I, but, but I also think that, um, you know, just like Katie said, if it really gets hot, he could probably lay low and just live on yeah. the money that he's made for, what, a couple, a uh, year or two, and sure. then kind of resurface. More money than we'll make in our lives, that's yeah. for sure. So he might have enough money to wait this out. Mm. Have you ever uh, said something that somebody really caught offense by that you didn't think was all that bad or whatever? Have you found yourself ever on an apology tour? Sure. Yeah. Oh, gonna... there's too many to list. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've, I've stuck my foot in my mouth many a day. Well, who knows? We we have a, a maybe a, an hour and a half or, or so to go on this podcast. Maybe you'll yeah. add to the list today. And, yeah, <laughs> it, it can happen. But you know, uh, usually we've got too many too many articles to cover. So yeah, okay. We well, don't get that chance. Let's get to it. McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus 110. We're getting up in the three Damn. digits. 110. Here we are. Thank you, everyone, for returning. To the new listeners, thank you for checking us out. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and takes it out of the concert hall, contextualizing all classical musics as classical music and connecting them with conversations that have something to do with the, with the real world out here. And the world is real as we have both seen, you know, coming in from out of town and right. brought in our perspectives. We'll get into a little bit of that today. But uh, before we hop into the first movement, once again, I would like to send a huge thank you to the Shuttleworth Foundation for your continued support. Thank you so much for supporting Triloquy. Um, also to the Lakes Area Music Festival. I had the pleasure of going up uh, to Brainerd, Minnesota, spending the night in Niswa, Minnesota at a beautiful uh, cabin resort. It looked nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Giving, uh, giving it up to the audiences up there, you know, doing my normal spiel, preaching to the people. I'll uh, give a, a little sample of that in the fourth movement today, in the final movement. And I also want to just send a shout out to Paula, who sent me a very nice note. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. And I know there are lots of different types of people who listen to this podcast. So it's great to get a shout out from the world of academia. And then a continued thank you for your support uh, to Sister Florence, friend of the show, who always 
always uh, does really great things to keep us both uplifted. Sister Florence sent um, a Kwanzaa card, a, a, you know, a, a Juneteenth message that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. She also recently, uh, Scott, wrote me a letter of <laughs> recommendation for employment. So it's people out here rooting for me. Y'all want me to get a job. I was about to say, what's she trying to say? <laughs> what's she trying to say? But anyway, thank you, everyone, once again for uh, tuning in. Opus 110, here we go. Getting into movement one. All right, Scott. So in addition to being the podcast that decolonizes the phrase classical music, this is also the shout out to Beyonce podcast. On more than one occasion. It's been a while since I've brought up Beyonce, but... I couldn't I couldn't leave it uh, leave this latest story in the dust. I'm reading here from revolt.tv, Beyonce's formation named Rolling Stone's best music video of all time. Let me read a little bit. According to Rolling Stone, Beyonce's formation video is the best video of all time in honor of MTV's 40th anniversary. The magazine compiled a list of 100 of the greatest music videos to ever be released and Queen Bee's 2016 visual was on top of the list. Now you're on record, Scott, <laughs> on two on, occasions on this podcast saying the formation was your favorite Beyonce composition. So That's right. where does the music video rank in your well, with your love of it's the her actual most piece theatrical. of music? It's her in my opinion, it's her most theatrical. I love the stylized uh, approach mm-hmm. that she took to it. Uh, plus, anytime you're going to get her hanging out the window of an El Camino, mm-hmm. you got my attention. <laughs> now, it's an El Camino if it's a Chevy, if it's a Ford, it's a Ranchero. Trust me, that makes a difference. <laughs> but um, it has that. Uh, and not to mention the song itself. Yeah. You know, it's she does a lot with a little. Mm-hmm. You know, there's well, what a do you lot, mean by that? Well, there's there's what, maybe uh four or five tracks, like the the melody and then the beat and her vocals, oh, sure. right? So there's uh, she's doing uh, a lot with a little. And I think that that is a good lesson for a lot of producers out there. You don't have to gild the lily every time. That's all I preached when we worked at the same place, yeah. uh, especially for like little 30 second promos and things like you don't need seven musical examples. Uh, shout out to uh, uh, Damien Strange, uh, tr- <laughs> Triloquy hey, guest from uh, season one. You know, Damien also works at KFAI. He, he has a, right, right. A, a radio show that comes on Saturdays, I believe. And we sometimes uh, talk about production. And he says, uh, you know, he's the king of, you know, one piece of 30 second music you know lower it raise it how you need to do and call it a day that's how i am too i know that you know you like to show your pro tool skills a a little bit but hey Mm -hmm. less is more as you've just said here with beyonce i like my pro tool skills like you like your transitions so we we each we each have our own little bit of things that we like to focus on and doesn't it come out nice when it's all together but um the clothes the dancing um, the uh, the minimalist approach that still gets you moving in your seat. Yeah, uh, I I feel vindicated. You know, we're gonna uh, as as I as we mentioned in the downbeat. You know, cancellation is sort of the uh, the B topic, the B theme for today. And they tried they tried to get Beyonce out of here with this song and this video. So first of all, you know, it premiered at uh, the Super Bowl that year. I was sitting mm-hmm. in the airport and you know just getting my life, seeing this for the first time. Uh, the people, the dancers dressed up as Black Panthers and the very pro-Black imagery 
that really shook a lot of people. And then, of course, when the video comes out, Beyonce is, you know, in New Orleans laying on top of a police car that's being flooded, flooded out. out and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing. You have a child dancer um, in front of a row of police officers in riot gear, and they're putting up their hands. So, you know, the, the images, the political messages mm -hmm. are, are very, you know, clear and artistically done. Over, Do yeah. you... Uh, you know what? What are your what are your thoughts on that? It seems like, you know, that would that if if anything pushed the you know far right fans away, <laughs> it must have been this video. But still, you know, Rolling Stone says shout out to you. <laughs> Thanks, Rolling Stone. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I've watched the Super Bowl halftime performance one, so I have to go yeah. back and revisit that. But uh, like I said, just you know, I I've said so many times that I have a, th a theater background. And I appreciate the attention that she puts on stylizing her sets and, yep. and getting her shots set up. Yep. I appreciate exactly that. Exactly the way she wants them. So a big right. sharp to Beyonce this week, as always. Um, we have, I think we've shared a little bit of formation on Triloquy before, but, you know, it's also the one year anniversary of Black is King. That's, you know, another visual spectacle. I invite you, Scott, to revisit it. We, I watched it again today and there was stuff that mm -hmm. I had forgotten about and, you know, just how, how incredibly uh, theatrical, as you said, this is. And I don't know, maybe it could be considered some sort of uh, very contemporary opera or something if you want to think about it that way. You know, the, the way that the story I could see is that. placed with the different songs. Anyway, mm -hmm. so um, in honor of Beyonce and uh, year one, one year anniversary of Black is King, I wanted to uh, share a little bit of the beginning of the section of Black is King that highlights the song Mood Forever. It starts with this really incredible violin solo, Beyonce waking up to live orchestral music and ode to uh, like, a, what's that movie? Uh, uh, Coming to America. Mm -hmm. You know, he has the orchestra up there. So kind of giving us uh, that feeling and getting us into the groove of Beyonce. So here's a little bit of Mood Forever. Shout out and congratulations to Beyonce. I mean, so many worlds coming together in that music. You have the Western classical violin at the beginning. You get some I don't know, bluesy, B or how, how would you categorize the, the beat that sort of had your shoulders moving over there? Sure, sure. Um, and then, of, of course, the uh, the African vocals there, just really important. I know people make fun of me as, as it becomes sort of a joke for people to just stand Beyonce, just a, a trope. But that's why we stand. All of these things coming together. And then we have the visuals to go with it. So no yeah. wonder Rolling Stone is around here speaking the truth. You know, <laughs> what other Beyonce bests do we have yet to come? You know, we have we have yet to have the Beyonce Symphony. Now, if one of these orchestras want to get my attention, hmm. the Beyonce Symphony, there are all sorts of melodies and themes throughout her catalog. I mean, I see I'm, I'm giving I'm giving up too much right now. But, you know, I see a, a movement, well, let's say a four movement symphony, a movement one being um, drunken love themes, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of the symphonies come in with that mysterious for the slow movement. It would have to be. If I Were a Boy. I mean, I think that's the biggest slow song that uh, Beyonce did for the third movement, sort of the scherzo-ish movement or something. I really think uh, Mine, 
uh, Beyonce featuring uh, Drake, my favorite male rapper. That would be great. But then, of course, for the final movement, you have to do Crazy in Love. Crazy in Love has to be a part of the Beyonce symphony. So anyway, if someone is out there trying to arrange something, get to work. <laughs> so just a quick aside, which which symphony do you think is best outfitted to do that project? Which orchestra? Which orchestra? Hmm. Which group? Yeah, uh, I would really want to see like a an orchestra that actually appreciates Beyonce. So you'll get a lot of these orchestras. I know the video of I think Seattle Symphony performing with Sir Mix-a-Lot went viral for a little mm -hmm. while, you mm -hmm. know, and you know, it, it's cute to have that, but I want there to be musicians who are really just in it, you know, yeah, and, and really right, understand the right. spirit of it. So anyway, we'll 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 see. We'll see. I would love to see that. I would I would buy a ticket to that. Hmm. I would, so if, you if heard you it want, here first. If folks. you want me at your orchestra concert, program Beyonce. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, um, and speaking of other champions, there's been a lot of talk this week about Simone Biles. I'm sure you've you know yep. seen a little bit of that. I'm going to yep. read here a little bit from WHYY.org. Simone Biles' decision to prioritize her mental health, a sign of American culture shift. The decision by Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast of all time, another greatest of all time, to withdraw from the U.S. Olympic team competition to prioritize her mental health drew criticism but also massive praise her decision is not the first of its kind weeks ago tennis superstar naomi osaka withdrew from the australian open in part to avoid the social anxiety she experiences when forced to speak with reporters and of course naomi osaka ended up lighting the olympic torch which mm -hmm. really was a moment like for a black person who is also japanese to represent japan in that way that's a that, that was huge that was huge for me and i'm trying to you know, I've, I've been keeping the Olympics at arm's length because of all of the, you know, folks not allowed to uh, participate because of marijuana and and different things. But but that was a moment. Um, I so the first thing I want to say about this, I curate my social media very well. So it, it is a lot of dialogue and discourse that I just do not see on my timeline. Mm -hmm. So learning that people were critical of Simone Biles for prioritizing her mental health is something that. I only saw through people complaining about it, like people posting, I can't believe there are people out here saying such and such about Simone and da da da. So I, I didn't know that was a part of the thing. Uh, what do you think about the critique of prioritizing mental health? It seems like it just goes against the tradition of good old American employees. Do your job no matter what, you know? Yep. It sure does sound like that. And um, I can't help but think if it, uh, what was it, Phelps, who was the big swimmer from yeah. a few years ago? Yeah. Um, if he did something similar, I don't think that he would have met the same sort of pushback. Uh, and, and why is that? Because he's a white male and he would get more leeway. So um, Simone basically said that she was stressed to the point of not knowing how she was oriented in the air. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do things like she that does superhuman, <laughs> you could break your neck. You need to know if you're you upside to, down or not. Right. And you need to know when to stick your leg back out. <laughs> so yeah, let me let me give her a sharp real quick before I forget. You know, a part of the conversation that I don't see enough of is the pressure she is under as a black woman and people are talking right, about that but right. we but we don't really contextualize it right. as a black woman and i think someone actually wrote this being the greatest is not enough because every time you slip or every time your performance isn't just perfect there are people there to highlight that 
There, exactly. The, one of the uh, local, uh, I'm not even going to shout them out. I don't want to say their name, but one of the local news affiliates, uh, we were sitting at the bar. So let me let me back up. Me and Dell were sitting at the bar, and they had the Olympics on, and Simone Biles did, uh, I, I don't know what the Olympic sports are called, but when they run and, and flip over the platform, you know, and, and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she had two runs at it. The first one, uh, she kind of slipped up and, and landed a little bit off the mat. And then, you know, you saw her sort of like a like just shaking it off like an upset face and went back and of course performed it perfectly because she's done it a kajillion times so it's really about getting in that super focused moment anyway the local news affiliate when they're covering it guess which take they put on the news yes which take you guessed it the one where she's fallen off the thing where, where it's not quite perfect so it's like the news outlets and the media can't wait to highlight Simone Biles not being perfect 100% of the time. So when you add being a black woman to that, there are so many deep conversations when when you talk about expectation of representation. You know, that was one of my big arguments when I was on the radio. I'm under pressure as a black person to make sure that I'm speaking to the black folks. I'm not about to have black people out here saying, oh, he just a, a, a mm, I don't even, I don't, I don't want to say that C word, that C-O-O-N word too much but you know it would be really easy for that to be the dialogue if i'm there standing Haydn, and mozart when the city is burning down okay so for simone biles it's like she has to be great for all of the black people because there are folks that see her slipping up gonna be like oh well you see that's that's what it always comes to this diversity this and diversity that all we care about is who's the best and she's up here not doing her greatest so when you have all of that in your ear of course your mental health isn't right you know so i say you know shout out to her for prioritizing herself now it's very different being an olympic athlete than being someone who's punching the clock what type of prioritizing mental health do you think we need to see for it to become a more regular thing in the workplace is one thing for simone biles to do it do we need to see uh company presidents uh, prioritizing mental health or making statements to uh, employees, to bodies of staff saying, look, take care of your mentals. If, if you're not there mentally, don't come to work. Take some take some time off. Do you do you think, you know, maybe that is the is the solution to switching this, you know, switching the culture in this way? Mm, I, I think in, including some mental health days in your compensation package would be pretty cool. Explicitly that like right. sick days because and mental let's, health days. Let's let's be real. How many times have you thought up an excuse to call in so that you had something to say? You know, I can't come in because I... Yeah, and you know what? I'm not ashamed of saying I have diarrhea to get out of work. (laughs) I've used that one a lot. (laughs) So that's what I'm saying. So what if you didn't have to do that? So what if you didn't have to remember that you told somebody that? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, hell, well, you know, I mean, I, I, the I next have time, a day off now, so <laughs> the next time you come into come into work, hey, Garrett, everything dried up for you, all right? You I'll be like, good? yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I won't do is lie on somebody's death. You know, somebody said my mom no, died. No, don't or do something. that. Don't do that. You know, or or you know, even people who may who may not have an aunt, just to say stuff like that. I don't play. I don't that. know. It seems play that. that that seems like a simple, easy enough thing. We have to remember, there's people out there that don't get time, paid time off. Right. Right. So what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. What's been your uh, what's been your silliest call in note or or whatever? Can, can you remember one that was just complete bullshit that that worked? <laughs> you don't want to say on air. <laughs> it's fine. I have my safe button ready. Go ahead. 
<laughs> uh, we'll, we'll loop back around. Give me a time. Give me a chance to think about. You something. have to think of it. I All do. Right. Well, anyway, a uh, huge shout out to um, Simone Biles. I am thinking about her. She has nothing else to prove. She has all of those medals. She's already proved that she's the world's greatest. So, so what if she, if she's taking mental health days and, and I think more of us need to, you know, decolonize our mind again, shout out to uh, John from last week, decolonize our mind, free our minds to the idea that it is okay to take a mental health day. It, that there is nothing wrong with that. And I hope more workplaces and uh, professional spaces will will get us there. I mean, especially in music. You know, if you're any type of musician, you can't really give it mm-hmm. if your mentals aren't right. I mean, classical is probably the the easiest one to fake it in. And kind of like uh, somebody coming in to fill in for a soloist at the last minute and getting yeah. the career making concert there. Yeah. Shout out to SUNY. Uh, right here in St. Paul, a gold medalist. Oh, yeah. She's getting a lot of attention now. She's going to get a parade. Yeah, representing the Hmong community here here in uh, Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to bring up while we're talking about the Olympics, I I didn't uh, pull up the article, but uh, one of the athletes protested the national anthem with an X. Did you see that? I didn't. Yeah, I'll read a little bit from here. The International Olympics Committee is reviewing a gesture made by a U.S. athlete after winning the silver medal for a potential violation of their ban against protests. Raven Saunders put her wrist together to make an X after her second place victory in the shot put event. The 25-year-old later tweeted about the subsequent controversy. I'll uh, I'll link that. But that's what that's what I mean, Scott, when I talk about being the best isn't even enough. She's gotten a silver medal in shot put, a global star at this point, but there's still a rock to throw at her, a rule against protest. This is, you know, Dell Dell shits on the IOC all day, every day, like mm-hmm. every, every turn he's pointing out how this is their issue. But, you know, it's getting to the point where it's hard, Scott, to really, and I'll speak for myself only, it's getting hard to really support the Olympics as an American because of all of the American bullshit uh, is, you know, if, if there were uh, an Afro America that could be represented, I feel like that would be different, but how can an athlete, certainly a black athlete and most certainly a black woman athlete stand there with an uh, American, the so-called national anthem played and just stand there with pride, understanding, first of all, the problems of the anthem itself historically, and then, you know, everything that America is continuing to do today. So you mean to tell me that the IOC says it is just wrong for for folks to respond to that in a silent way it's not like she stole the mic and got on a rant you know i'm just i'm tired i i I like i like seeing the competition i like rooting for individuals there's a black tennis player who who's at the olympics but you know all all of the stuff in between just makes me again just change the channel and, and think about something else it's hard it's rough it's rough I've never been one to watch the Olympics either. I never really got. No, but also keep in mind that they're um, talented athletes that have been programmed to believe that this was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. From a young age that you want to get to into that spot where every single part of you is being critiqued. And it, and, it, it sounds like the road to an orchestra. Mm. How they teach us how that is the pinnacle, being the principal, whatever, of name, big orchestra is just the top, despite the mental gymnastics you have to go through. The mm-hmm. oh, the uh, it's, it's rough. It's ghetto out here in classical music. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to close out this little Olympic uh, section, I wanted to let me give another sharp 
I wanted to uh, pass a sharp to Oksana Shusovitina, a 46-year-old gymnast who uh, is retiring from the Olympics this year. Uh, I'm reading here from CBSNews.com talking about how she got a standing ovation after uh, competing in her eighth Olympic Games. Damn, 46, 46 year years old. old. I mean, flipping. I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my knees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh man. So anyway, another woman who is going uh, beyond you know, the odds when it comes to age and and really, yeah. you know, doing that thing. I wanted to uh, shout her out uh, because she reminds me of like the pride that some of these folks can you know, have in, in representing their countries at the Olympics. I think about, um, you know, I, I've mentioned all the time, the Bahamians that have gone to the Olympics and with my connections down there, well, one of them medal, I really feel like the pride that everyone in that country must be feeling. And they have no reason to stand on the podium and, and put their wrists in an X because they live in a country that, you know, despite the problems of that country and, and any country, you know, really, celebrates black folks and and blackness so um anyway i wanted to um you know round this out uh oksana represents uzbekistan has represented uzbekistan this year so i went down a path to find some uzbekistani classical music and i found a tune here that i will put in the description everything is in um a cyrillic sort of <laughs> language here i thought i pulled one up that had uh some more details uh, the artist here is turgan alimatov and uh this tune is actually called in english you don't ask how I am. You know, it's it's interesting to tie all of these things together. And maybe the beginning of uh, prioritizing mental health will be answering that question with a bit of honesty. When someone asks how you are, having the courage to actually do it. We know that some most folks probably even ask that question just out of a gesture. But what if more of us started answering that simple question, how are you, more honestly? Maybe that could be a, a huge turning point for the conversation of Maybe. mental health and mental wealth. Anyway, here's a, a little bit of this performance uh, featuring Turgan Ali Matov in honor of Oksana over representing Uzbekistan and all of the classical musics of the world. talk about diversifying programming and then maybe what some audiences may be a little bit afraid of or whatever. There's nothing offensive about that. And that is very much classical music, not a Western European one, but a sound that has to become more regular in our in our rotations. I would love to hear something like that live, maybe even with an orchestra, you know? Mm. Maybe it just gets into that conversation, that problematic term of world music that I hate so much. And how yeah. we set that aside from classical music, even though all of that stuff is classical music at the end of the day. Right. Mm. Anyway, so uh, I wanted to uh, continue this first movement with a quick natural and update on the saga of our friend Jonathan Gibbs. So some of y'all may remember a few weeks back, we called Jonathan live on air in the Triloquy to talk about some drama that was happening with the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. That was, you know, when it was hot, you know, right. on, on the streets. Well, now, you know, they're they're coming up with the articles and, the, and, and that sort of thing. So I'm reading here from GayCityNews.com. Headline, New York City Gay Men's Chorus Shrouded in Accusations of Racism. Big Apple Performing Arts, the company that runs the New York 
York City Gay Men's Chorus Bepa. has decided to reinstate an ousted member with probation after investigating claims that he was booted for calling out racism in the organization. The internal uproar marked just one of multiple allegations of racism within the group dating back several years. There's one part of this I wanted to find to um, <laughs> that I know I needed to quote. Let me search here the word dog. It'll make sense in a minute. Here we go. Uh, two years, this is also from the same article. Two years ago, a chorus member who was drunk at a non-chorus function allegedly repeated repeatedly used the N-word while other chorus members were present, according to members familiar with the incident. Quote, I don't see what the problem is with saying Ninja, we'll say for the sake of this, the chorus member allegedly said, if I want to name my dog Ninja, I will name my dog Ninja. Okay, so y'all wildin'. <laughs> y'all are wildin' over there with the uh, the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. And we love to pretend that these queer spaces are just free from all oppression and free from all wow. problematic, but we see this here. So you have folks like Jonathan, who I'm sure has heard many things. You know, that's one example that's being named. So he's heard many things, and when he begins to talk about them and try to get it to the light, he's the one that's ousted. And then have nerve to get him back. I wish we could call him now. We're probably already running over on time. Have nerve to put him in with probation. Like, okay, fine, you can come back, but we're watching you. Oh, I mean, out. come on. Look come, out. come on. If it were up to me, I would just be done. I would just be done. But Jonathan, I'm sure, uh, loves the group, and there are lots of folks in the group who are phenomenal. I went to a Halloween party years ago uh, thrown by uh, the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, and it was it was I was dressed as Jesus. So, of course, everybody has to say, oh, you're black Jesus. I get it. Well, what if I'm what if I'm just Jesus? Jesus. What, what if... What if Jesus was actually in real life a person of color and not this blonde hair, blue eyed motherfucker that y'all got on y'all's wall? Who is he, by the way? I wonder who that <laughs> who that actor was. Who's been <laughs> who's been you know other than uh, Caviezel? Who, <laughs> who's the who's the most famous Jesus? <laughs> well, I'm the anyway, you you uh, you you got there is not here? enough there is not enough beer in Milwaukee for me to say that out loud. <laughs> you say you could never be that drunk. No. Well, in vino veritas, right? When I people guess. get drunk, they tell the truth and, and tell on themselves. So I guess. I just wanted again to um, offer that quick natural. Um, I'll have the uh, link to that article in the description. Shout out to Jonathan Gibbs out here uh, fighting the good fight despite, you know, the problematic gays. I, I just want people to understand that the gays are problematic too. <laughs> What? I don't think that anybody's <laughs> ever written in and said that, but well, thank you for but, clarification. But when we talk about DEI, we love to, you know, include queer people in that conversation, which we should, especially our black trans women. But it's very important to point out that some of these white gay men say some stuff like that. And he's not ousted. Right. We we, we haven't not. read that story or, or maybe Jonathan can fill me in on that. Team. Yeah. Anyway, um. I've known Jonathan for many years, and before I knew Jonathan as a chorister, as a fan of choral music, um, I knew him as a video game music person. He even had a, a Apple radio show for a little while uh, that featured video game music. So uh, I wanted to continue here with a little bit of this. A tune that I try to pluck out on my guitar all the time comes from the video game Final Fantasy VII, Yuffie's theme, or Descendant of Shinobi, as uh, as some folks may know it. Well, you know, I, I can I can kind of do the melody down there on the E string, okay? But I found a, a performance of a, a guitar version of it that's actually really good. His name is John Oat. So this is his 
his uh, rendition of it. So shout out to Jonathan and everybody out there that loves video game music. think of that what you think of that I, I think the finger style is very good but he's also having fun with it you know kind of bopping around i, like I never that. would have placed that as video game music it just sounds like some contemporary finger style but it's really cool to watch this video because you can see the strings gently waving yeah yeah it's cool yeah how's your guitar playing been have you been practicing much lately i'm getting the calluses with, built with the metronome i hope i'm getting i'm getting the calluses okay. built back up with the on. metronome yeah i have and uh, I'm getting the calluses built back up on the left hand because I've been uh, playing a lot of flat wound and nylon string guitars, and you move from that back over to the steel string, yeah. and it shreds your ass up. Oh, I'm sure. I'm so sure. I'm trying to get those calluses built back up. I keep playing around with the different things that I might start using my time with uh, now that the world is open, and you know, once I get me a couple more little coins. I, I, I joked around, not joked around, I played around with the idea of maybe getting into a martial art, you know, taking care of some of uh, my, my COVID uh, inactivity, not so much my weight, but I just don't want to be out of breath, you know, when I climb the stairs to the basement. I hear that. Um, but 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 sometimes I think maybe lessons. Like I'm I'm done with bassoon lessons. I'm I'm done with y'all have to tell me about playing the Mozart concerto. <laughs> but you know, studying flute or maybe even studying guitar, I think would be really cool for me to take guitar lessons. Sure. He has the thing. Uh, uh, John Oat. He doesn't use and he wasn't using it in that video. But he doesn't have the step. He connects something to the guitar. Yeah, that, there's a little suction cup stand yeah. that sort of sits on your thigh. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's such a handsome instrument to play, I think, when you're really playing yeah. the guitar well. Anyway, shout out to um, video game music and all of that. Uh, okay, so uh, you have an accidental. What what uh, what ax which which accidental is this one getting for you this week? Going on over. This is a fa lat. Yeah. So go on okay. over to slipdisc.com because oh, slipdisc. Yeah. Last last week, <laughs> I just assumed. First of all, I just assume it's problematic if it comes from slip disc. <laughs> Last week we, uh, well, primarily you dragged <laughs> dragged Norman Lebrecht a little bit. I hope um, y'all enjoyed the little, bleeps a I, little bit. I hope y'all enjoyed the bleeps because we sat and and debated whether we should you know keep my cussing it or not. But, and FYI, uh, <laughs> if you uh, if you want to hear what Garrett actually said, unbleeped, what uh, that might be our first NFT. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. you were shook. I was over really like, woo. So, okay. So, um, anyway, dark shout out to Norman LeBrick. Right, Go ahead, so Scott. The, uh, the headline from this week's slip disc, uh, July 28th, is every time arts leaders cave to racial pressure, they deal a they deal creativity another below stop right there stop right there it's all like i said last week the headline gives it up 
maybe they do that on purpose. Is there, because this says here on Slip, I have a problem with the website in general. I, I can't get past that. The number one classical music news site. What do we need to do to get them out of here? Because every, again, we only talk about Slip Disc as a classical music people when something problematic is said. And that seems to be way more often than not. Yeah, I don't know. But I here we are. Yeah, I don't go there too Who often. Who works over there? I need to do some. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, here's the thing, though, is that there's that headline. And um, I guess since he doesn't have a Twitter presence, he just quote tweeted uh, Heather McDonald here on the website. And Heather McDonald is the... No, the break doesn't have a Twitter Okay, that surprises well, me. <laughs> let's, let's just say that I didn't go and look at it. Okay. Um, but Heather McDonald is the critic that dragged DBR in Tulsa recently, right? Well, go ahead. I'm trying not okay. to cuss. No, I, I went over and I looked at the, I went over <laughs> and I looked at her whole thing. It was about opera and and race and yeah. casting different races in the mold. But what what uh, Uncle Norm uh, highlighted <laughs> here was uh, the, the next step in imaginative emasculation is obvious. Only elder actors can play King Lear. Only hunchbacks can sing Rigoletto or play Richard III. Only fat people can play or sing Falstaff since using stage makeup and bodysuits to transform non-old, non-handicapped, and non-fat actors into a present into those roles represents ageism, fat shaming, and ableism. Okay, so, uh, oh, and here, and certainly no straight actor will ever be able to play a gay or trans character. So, um, it goes on to say, ultimately, therefore, it's uh, theater itself may have to be segregated since to claim that a white audience can identify with a black theme work is more subtle form of cultural appropriation. Um, I don't know what she is talking about. <laughs> I'm working hard not to be problematic I, right now. <laughs> I, I do not know what she is talking about there. Um, it's since the 1990s, people have been working on the race issue in Shakespeare's work in but just, particular. But just to make sure everybody understands, basically what she's saying is cancel culture and wokeness has gotten so out of control that we can't do nothing on stage anymore. That's what she's alleging, basically. Yeah, you're you're getting that. And that, you know, come on, uh, Falstaff is supposed to be a big, fat, white guy. I have news for you. They Falstaff has been cast a hundred different ways to Sunday. You can see a Star Trek Falstaff if you want. Yeah. Uh, since the 1990s, people have been doing this work. Uh, there are a number of universities in the in the 1990s that started queer theory in Shakespeare. Yeah. So that is happening. Heather, you are two time zones behind your own ass. Okay. The, you you're people are already doing this. And it's been happening. It and has it, been and happening. And it continues to happen. To this day! <laughs> so, um, and, you know, all you have to do, just a few days ago, a story came out on NPR.org. Black theater artists are helping Shakespeare speak to more diverse audiences. Just last month, they closed an all-black production, Afrofuturist, by the way, mm -hmm. of King Lear. Yeah. Okay, it's be, It is happening. And to the point where... Uh, there are some people who, where the change isn't happening enough, they're walking out. Shakespeare on the Green in Omaha this year has been canceled for the second time in a row because people came up and said, hey, you're not doing enough. And when it, when then, when change didn't happen, when they said you're not doing enough, they yeah. walked out. So now we got two years in a row with no Shakespeare on the Green. Because... They aren't putting up. They're not putting the, up the with lack it. of inequ the, yeah. the the inequity out there. I mean, so just just because ooh. it doesn't get on a big stage in New York and you don't see it, that doesn't mean it's not happening. 
you came with the sauce this week. I get a little. <laughs> <laughs> I get this, this guy. The when it's about theater, I'm gonna oh, have don't to, play with Scott. I'm gonna have to come over and dab my forehead. <laughs> There's one part of the uh, National Public Radio article that you mentioned that I want to bring up. Let me scroll here for a second. Okay, yeah, part of the um, article here is I'm reading. It says, if Shakespeare has traditionally been considered white property, as UCLA's Arthur Little argues, one way to make his canon more accessible is simply to make casts and creative teams more diverse. There's been a movement in the U.S. since the 1990s to cast more black actors in Shakespeare, but the once popular trend of colorblind casting is giving way in many quarters to calls for color-conscious casting. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely get uh, and agree wholeheartedly with the idea of alleging to be colorblind being problematic because that means you don't see me right. because I'm of color. Um, but I do think, you know, I have to kind of push back on the idea that all we need to do is get Shakespeare looking black. I, I want to check out the Afrofuturist King Lear and it's, it's available. You can stream it online. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at it uh, this week. But, you know, and I, and I have this, you know, I ask this question a lot when it comes to opera as well. Like, you know, is it is an all black magic flute by Mozart going to be the thing that gets the black people in there. There will be more black folks there, but it has to be more than just the casting. It has to be um, the the sets and the setting and the and the costumes and I think even the language to to an extent, you know, because again, yeah, you know, Magic Flute is one of those operas yeah. that Mozart said sing in the language of the people or whatever. So I feel like it's just more than the casting. I'm, I'm not sure. If, Changing the language, yeah. I think you're going to get some pushback from white and black actors about that that are serious about Shakespeare yeah but um, the the question becomes unless you are a theater uh, outlet a theater uh, venue or troupe that focuses on the classics consider not doing the Shakespeare that's, then. that's all I'm saying Shakespeare is great I love Titus Andronicus I live you know when the black character in that play, I think the character's name is Aaron, you know, is fucking over Titus, cutting off his hand and and kills his two. So, like, I, I live. Mm. I, I love the drama of that. I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying that Shakespeare is bad. Shakespeare is really great. You know, it's 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 historic. And there are other plays. I'm, I'm never going to get off that point to where there is so much literature out there. Why not platform one of the folks who are alive, one of the playwrights that are here to see their contemporary vision of theater manifested, realized, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get off that point. You know, the other week you were talking about they getting high and doing Shakespeare. I mm -hmm. mean, the people, the theater people just I mean, is and, and you come from the theater world. Is Shakespeare just the Beethoven? Is he the person that's just not going to go away? It's always going to be someone who feels like it has to be repeated once again for some people. Mm. Um, myself and the people that I hung around with, we didn't go to any of the classics productions because we were much more interested interested in what uh, David Mamet yeah. and um, people like um, Sam Shepard were writing, you know, the, the more contemporary stuff. I'm trying to think, I was trying to think of an iambic pentameter response to you real quick. I'm tired of seeing the same old da-da-da-da-da, whatever. <laughs> anyway, I'll come back next week. Maybe I'll think of something. So anyway, well, we'll have all of that. Uh, shout out to, is there anybody we're shouting out here? Who did the Afrofuturist King Lear? Shout out to y'all. 
I'm going to put that <laughs> on the. Uh, it's the a group in St. Louis. Oh, a group in St. Louis. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we uh, on our road trips, you know, uh, we passed through St. Louis. I went to stop and see my sister and her kids, but Dell had never uh, been to the Arch, so it was kind of cool to mm. take him there to see it for the first time and all that. A lot of stuff going on in uh, in St. Louis. The uh, Opera Theater of St. Louis is you know doing some really fantastic things. Uh, I don't know about what the symphony is up to, but uh, the radio station, the classical radio station is doing phenomenal. You know, that's the station that has uh, Bach and Beyonce. Oh, cool. You know, um, hosted by Maria Ella. Shout uh -huh. out to Maria. So, yeah, let's let's let, let's see more of this. I, I love to say ain't nobody doing nothing good out here, but it, it's hard to ignore what's happening in St. Louis these days on on all fronts when it comes to the arts. Yeah. You already mentioned you already gave a shout out to my transitions, right? Yeah, I did. Okay, so here, so here's another one. So, <laughs> at the Globe Theater, okay, where Shakespeare had these operas, what was in the middle of the stage? Do you remember from your history classes? What a ghost light? No, a hole, a hole in the stage. Mm -hmm. Every one of these, so they could jump, pop out of it, or whatever. So, I went in thinking about that. I was thinking about one of the songs I gained a renewed relationship with over all of the time on the road. You know, you listen to all sorts of music when you're on road trips. So. Black Hole Sun <laughs> is a tune that came on, and I was like, oh, yeah. You know, the first time I heard that tune, um, it was performed by Chris Thiele. Chris Thiele took his uh, mandolin and just sang it in the you know in honor of the, the late uh, composer uh, of, of that tune. But anyway, thinking about, uh, you know, that tune, it came up on the radio. Oh, wow, this is a great song that I didn't always know. I looked up some uh, instrumental renditions, and I found a really good solo piano version. It comes from an album called Transcriptions by pianist Kai Shoemaker. So I wanted to uh, share a little bit of this with you, Scott, and see what you thought about this cover. What you think? Do you think Kai Shoemaker does the composition justice? All right, sparse. Yeah, you. But you, you love all of the uh, the space and music. You know, you mm -hmm. love that that breathing. I do. As I was listening to it, and he really gets into it later on in the recording. I'll put it on the Triloquy tracks for y'all to listen to. I, I think of music like that as where we can go in our pedagogy. It's not like. It you know he's he has two fingers on the keyboard just doing nothing. There's technique and sure. and theory that you need to use to to even play that. I mean, I would certainly love to hear that on on classical radio. I yeah. think that would be very refreshing. And even the you know the the guitar versions an alternate tuning too. I I think it might just be drop D. But... Okay, okay. Well, anyway, uh, that that song came up on mm. um, Del and I's uh, road trip, and I think it's cool to think about what the future could look like when we, again, have this vision of American classical music, that is an American classic, most certainly, and a transcription of it that's a little friendlier for the more traditional audiences. So low Probably. piano can't, can't hurt, can't hurt to include Probably. that. So if you're out there programming music or especially for a radio station, look up the album Transcriptions by Kai Shoemaker. I want y'all to, some of y'all to start playing this music so more of us can start caring about what y'all be doing up here at these public radio stations. But anyway, 
We are in the second movement where Scott and I are going to take the second ending. We take a piece of music that we repeated over and over and over again. And here in discussion, we're finally taking the second ending and talking about why we repeated it so much. So we were talking again, you know, Scott, about being on the road and listening to a lot of music. So I gave uh, Dell at one point, you know, in middle of nowhere. I shouldn't say that. Not in middle of nowhere, but non-big city Iowa, uh, going down those straight paths that just seem to go forever. Um, I'm in the car uh, taking a nap as he's driving. And I wake up um, because there's some music that I'm hearing that, uh, you know, grabbed my attention. And the longer the tune is playing, Dell is singing along. So he obviously knows the song, but I had never heard it before. So I'm sure I can't be the only one for whom this tune is new. So I'm going to share a little bit of it. Old man, look at my life I'm a lot like you So, of course, this tune, um, Old Man by Neil Young. I know that you have uh, opinions on Neil Young, but mm -hmm. where would you categorize this song? When I first heard it, I was like, okay, this is a nice country song. They only have country radio out here in Iowa. But the more I listen to it and I hear that groove that mm -hmm. I'm really getting into, it seems like it's so much more than just country. Maybe Roots or a classic I, rock. Yeah, I, I always it? heard him on classic rock stations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's a little bit more of this. Love lost such a cost Give me things that don't get lost Like a coin that won't get tossed You know, what I'm gathering from the song, from what I've been, you know, listening and repeating off of it, a young man, you know, just saying to an older fella, hey, look, I got problems too. We, we, we're all going through it, and it's, it's rough out here for everybody. But it's the phrase, you know, I'm a lot like you were. I, I forget the specific lyric. You know, the song is still new to me. But in essence, saying that I'm a lot like you were years ago, I don't I don't feel like I can walk up to somebody and say that because this is I feel like this is a new time. And maybe every generation feels that. But with all the tools we've been given, all the technology to have connectivity, I feel like the activism that we can really put out there is is unique to now. Maybe that's, you know, one of the ironic parts of the song that all, all young people think that they're reinventing the wheel. I don't know. Maybe, but, you know, the, some of the themes are pretty universal. I think that every generation at one point in time or another feels like they're coming in at the end. Yeah. You know, because everyone before you has that, well, in my day when we, you know, when everybody has that. Yeah. All the older pe folks have that story. I've got them. Yeah. I'm developing quite a crop of them. Um, and. You know, Neil was on the forefront of a lot of activism of the time as well. His uh, Ohio release is considered one of the biggest protest songs uh, that was also commercially successful. Mm. Uh, about the four uh, Ohio State, uh, Kent State students right. who were shot by the National Guard. They're right. protesting the Vietnam War. Um, I don't know why, for some reason, I just, I, I don't own any of his albums. Yeah. I, don't, I don't gravitate to it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I hadn't either, but I was glad to uh, come, come across this tune. When I think about 
one of the major themes of this podcast, recontextualizing, decolonizing the phrase classical music. When I hear that tune, you know, and it's even categorized as classic rock, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that is a part of the bedrock, at least the, if not the song, the general aesthetic and the tradition is a part of the bedrock of American music. Dare I even say what we should call American classical music? I don't I don't spend a lot of time with with uh, with, with that sort of musical aesthetic, but I, I'm certainly you know, not going to deny its rightful place as a part of that American classical canon. I think it's, mm. I think it's really great. You know, with all, a lot of these artists, I often think to myself, oh gosh, you know, did they say something racist once upon a time? Have they been canceled? And, and I don't know, but you said, you know, he told, uh, Neil Young told Trump to stop playing his music, didn't he? He did. He's like, no, I don't know. Do not play my shit. That's what, <laughs> in, in we as, need more of them saying that. In as many words. Oh, really? <laughs> Well, also, I, I forget the uh, the guy who's the lead singer for Creedence Clearwater Revival. They also said, uh, you can't be playing Fortunate Son before your rally. We're, we're talking about you. <laughs> right. The person in question <laughs> is you. Right, right. Mm-mm-mm. Anyway, shout out to Neil Young. If, if any of y'all don't know the tune, Old Man, I recommend it. I've been, I've been taking a listen. All right, Scott, how about you tell the people, uh, you know, where you went driving over the past week and uh, the music that made it through your speakers. Visited down in Omaha just for a quick trip. And on the way back, you know, I had all the different feelings going on, uh, wondering what the hell am I doing? Um, uh, there, there was even a point where I came up with uh, some song lyrics and as part of the chorus was everything dear to you disappearing in the rear view. Mm. So I might write, I might write that okay. sad country road song. Yeah. But um, there was one Tears for Fears track that I kept looping over and over and over uh, just because part of the video is him driving around in, at, uh, at dusk. Mm-hmm. And with the fires and the smoke, um, the way the sun was going down had sort of a perpetual twilight going on sure. for like an hour. It was sure. really strange. Sure. But um, I got back way back to an artist I was listening to in late high school and early college, Terrence Trent Darby. Mm-hmm. Do you know this name? I did it. No, no. Tell us more. Well, when this song came out, If You Let Me Stay, there were a lot of bands who were trying to tap into sort of a doo-wop or uh, like a, a 50s Philly sort of street corner vibe. Yeah. But they were all white people. They yeah. were doing all this harmonizing and mm-hmm. everything. Um, Terrence Trent Darby, for me, was tapping into the soul uh, and adding a, and peppering it with what I thought was kind of like a Michael Jackson aesthetic. I mean, you said it's seasoning. Yeah. Just putting some seasoning on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the tracks of his that got the most play on MTV were Wishing Well and uh, Sign Your Name. Sign your name across my... I'm not going to go into it. You should go listen to him do it. (laughs) But If You Let Me Stay was sort of like a slide-in entrance for Terrence Trent Darby, if you ask me. Yeah, I love the opening of this. You know how I am about openings. Let's listen a little bit. That piano wasn't playing. (laughs) Now, why... In the late 80s, early 90s, that everybody have to talk at the beginning of their tunes. I don't know. You know, on like, MTV, let's just start singing. On MTV, there was a whole lot of lo- those outtakes like that, too. But sure. listen. Just hear me 
that bass. So when you're listening this, listening to this in the car, driving down the highway, I mean, what's the vibe? Are, are, you, are you, you know, getting into it? Is of it this, is this, this weird juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition of tears and this song? Like, and, <laughs> and I'm in there and I'm, I'm singing along with what lyrics I can remember uh, off key. I'm scooting in my seat. <laughs> and it, Radar is in the back seat, like Just like, dude, I'm tr- trying to get some sleep. Yeah, that trying, radar. <laughs> I can get any naps with this going on. No, but, but but that's cool. I mean, t- talk to me more. And you know, of course, you know, you went back home to Omaha. Talk to me more about how this artist's music, uh, you know, was formative to some era of of Scott Blankenship's life. Yeah, um, I I just remember when it came out and buying it and listen back then you know we listened to the the whole thing front to back yeah rather than the whole album yeah right and um there was so many tracks on it that were poignant and i felt like um since he wasn't getting much airplay i felt like i really had something you know i felt like something that not not a lot of people around me were listening to but when i would put it on even my brother who was you know a hard rock guy was like man this this is yeah. This is good. Yeah, well, yeah. Shout out to Terrence Trent Darby. If folks look him up now, there's going to be a different name, though. Right. And uh, I can't, Do you remember what it is? I can't remember what it is. Let's, um, let's look real quick. Um, now, if I'm saying it right, the name is Sananda Matreya. Yeah. I wonder I wonder what that's about. Is uh, is this artist trans? Am I, am I disrespecting with pronouns right now? We'll have to do some more research, maybe, I suppose. Well, when I was listening to him, he was straight man yeah so. yeah well you know times times change huh that's mm-hmm. all good well anyway yes uh shout out to um the artist formerly known as terrence trent darby <laughs> maybe we should uh say it that Sananda way Maitreya. yeah yeah well uh today's guest I'm, I'm really uh happy to share my conversation with paul festa paul is a, a violinist a writer you said you've checked out a, a couple short films by uh, mm-hmm. paul festa right so uh, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's one that he did in sort of like an old timey, just music, and then like holding up title cards. I think it's called the Glitter Emergency or something like that. Yeah. And then there's one with uh, a violin, uh, play the violin without playing the violin, and then he does some really interesting. I, I enjoyed it. Check out some of his visual things online. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul Festa recently wrote a really incredible essay that I'll have in the description of this. It's long. It's kind of heavy, but uh, it's really good. Basically, Paul is talking about cancel culture and how that uh, relates to the story of uh, Wagner and, and all of those sorts of, uh, you know, cancellations, anti-Semitism and that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of the really uh, uh, big points made in the article is that Wagner, uh, unlike many other composers, most other composers, has impacted world culture beyond classical music. So everybody knows Ride of the Valkyries, you know, see, uh, seeing a, a woman with a horn helmet and, you know, singing really loudly and boldly, you know, that's sort oh. of an image that folks know 
you yeah. know, for folks even outside of opera know. So there, there's that, uh, there, there's that discussion. But before we got into the conversation, I want to just read a little bit here uh, from the essay when it comes to, again, this issue of cancel culture and what composers we should be listening to. He says here, the trouble started in 1985 when the San Francisco Symphony gave his first performance of Metamorphosis, the Richard Strauss Requiem, written in the twilight of World War II. The work hypnotized me at first hearing. I mentioned it to my violin teacher at the San Francisco Conservatory, a gruff taskmaster in a wheelchair whose lessons had left me in tears on more than one occasion. I hear you there. Uh, he goes on to say his response was a sharp and graphic Holocaust lecture. Now that I think of it, the lecture cover Volkswagen, a car Mr. Tinkelman said the Nazis created for the German Volk to crush Jews with. Anyway, so he he has this really incredible experience with the music of Richard Strauss, but his teacher is like, no, he's anti-Semitic and he did this and that. So that conversation bled over into the music of Wagner. So Paul Festa spent some time uh, taking a look and taking a listen to all of the Wagner operas um, and and wrote some things about it. And we talk a bit um, about his work today. To transition us into my conversation with Paul Festa, I wanted to share an excerpt from um, a Wagner opera that I think I've actually shared here before. It's the finale to Gotterdammerung. It's this chorale that has just always really fascinated me. In the conversation, I talk a little bit why it's very memorable memorable for me. I'll give you a spoiler alert. It involves LSD, but it, <laughs> nonetheless, it's a really <laughs> um, it's a really incredible piece of music, and sometimes I have to put myself in check. Should I be listening to this? Should Is it appropriate for me to be platforming this? But, you know, mm. it, the, it, it's worth the conversation, so Here's a little bit of the ending of Gautur Damarung, and here's my conversation with Mr. Paul Festa. I sort of had this conversation at 15 and then put it aside. You know, like I, I brought the, it, it was actually sort of an adjacent composer. It was the music of Richard Strauss that I brought to my violin teacher. And he gave me a Holocaust lecture that made my hair stand on end. And, you know, um, it was really something that I, I felt um, that I, I, and I realized that I couldn't let go of Strauss. And I had an, uh, an elderly mentor um, in my life um, who was an old reporter, and he had a wall-length collection of LPs uh, that was heavy on Strauss opera, and, mm -hmm. uh, and his favorite soprano was Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. And, uh, and one day I went to him, I think probably, you know, trying to expunge my own guilt at having responded so strongly to this music. And mm -hmm. I said... You know, are you aware of the fact that Elizabeth Schwarzkopf slept with a Nazi general? Uh huh. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know that, but I'm. Um, but I'll, I'll let you know something. Um, for her performance in the last act trio of De Rosenkavalier, I would forgive her that. I would forgive her anything. And you know, this fried my 
15 year or 14 year old brain. Like I didn't even know how to process this. Um, and in some sense, I'm still processing it. Um, the, you know, the ability to separate um, the composer from the music, the ability to separate the artist from the art. Um, and I think that's a skill that I had to start learning immediately. Um, you know, a, as soon as he threw down that challenge to me. But in a sense, I felt like, okay, I can't give up Strauss. Um, I have this relationship with with George and we're going to sit and listen to the Electra and watch the Ariadna and, you know, and that's just the way things are going to be. Um, yeah. But I'll just, I'll just sacrifice Wagner instead. <laughs> so, so it wasn't, it really wasn't until um, I started teaching a class um, that necessitated a close study of uh, Tristan and Isolde. Um, that I had to sort of confront this thing that I had just, I had canceled. I had just sort of put away. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, a, I discussed this in the essay, it was a bit of a blessing and a curse to have, um, to have done that because encountering these works for the first time at midlife is amazing. Right. You know, really quite an astonishing, just, you know, um, um, a revelation. Um, yeah. and when you're ready, you know, to, to, to hit it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I know a lot of people who didn't live to my age. Like I, it might not, it might've been that I lived my entire life without ever, um, approaching these operas. And that would have been a great loss. I'm not sure I've yeah. answered your question. No, no, absolutely. You know, and speaking of great loss, you know, uh, in, in this world where, especially in the art sector, DEI and race and all of those things have, the discourse on that has been heightened. I really appreciate it that you found a way to incorporate W.E.B. Du Bois into this essay. You know, you end with uh, one of his quotes where he says, in essence, no human being, white or black, can afford not to know these operas if he would know life. Was he right? Because in essence, there are lots of folks, certainly lots of folks who appreciate the works of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who have never listened to um, a Wagnerian opera. Well, there there are a few things. First, I would say that um, that I'd have to deflect the the praise to Alex Ross, who has done in all, a lot of his work, a lot of a lot of um, research and um, effort into covering the African American um, experience in classical music, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's a whole section of his book Wagnerism um, that uh, that that studies the impact that Wagner had on African American people, um, yeah. and African American composers, and Af African American um, uh, performers. Um, and it, it's not just Du Bois in there. I mean, there's a there's a lot of really great stories. Um, yeah. So so there's that, and then um, and then in terms of um, sorry, I f forgot the. Tell me again the question. Well, basically, just you know, the idea that uh, when it comes to again the heightened discourse of race and DEI, this is a connection that many of W. E. B. Du Bois's fans, folks who really appreciate his work, they may not know about him. I just found it really interesting that uh, not only do we have that connection, but you made a point to end your essay with that point. Well, I'm in part because his statement, the one that you quoted, is so strong. You know, like if mm -hmm. you're gonna if you're gonna understand, you know, life as 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 we know it on this planet, you know, sure. don't miss this stuff. And I, I do feel that there's some there's a lot of truth to that. Um um particularly if you care about art. And and the wonderful thing about Wagnerism is that it's not I think people don't quite understand 
when they sort of glance at the book or hear something about it peripherally, it's not about Wagner's Im impact on music and musicians, although there's mm -hmm. some of that in there. It's about his impact on all of the other arts and politics right. and right. history. Um, and, you know, so one of the really eye-opening things about going through these pages is seeing how many of the works that you thought you knew, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that's a, essentially, you know, oh, Buddenbrooks? Okay, that's essentially a rewrite of the Gutter Demerung. I didn't, you know, yeah. well, whoops, I didn't know the Gutter Demerung, so that went right over my head. And you start seeing that over and over and over and over and over again. So even if you don't buy the full breadth of what Du Bois has said about, you know, what if you're going to know life, you've got to know Wagner. If you're going to know the artwork that was produced in Europe and the United States between, you know, the 18... 60s and 1910 you'd mm -hmm. and beyond you'd really you know you're missing a lot you're missing a, if you're going to read Joyce uh, right. I had no idea I know Joyce scholars who, who sort of when I mentioned Wagner they said oh Joyce had no interest in Wagner he had a tremendous interest in Wagner and there are mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of references to the operas in Finnegan's Wake and um, uh, Portrait of the Artist and, and through all of his works yeah, I feel like there's a an argument, you know, as I was reading your essay again, I couldn't help but to think about the idea that um, grace is given to Wagner, even in the you know most critical of circles that isn't given to other folks, you know, uh, sticking with, you know, again, the idea of race and all of these intersections. If we mention the fact, if many of us mention the fact that, for example, Louis Farrakhan is an incredible violinist who has, you know, performed all of the great works, anti-Semitism is thrown into that conversation far more violently, or at least from my perspective, than it is if we talk about the beautiful violin writing of Wagner, why do, why do you think again in the most critical of spaces, Wagner is still given more grace than others, specifically when it comes to you know touching on the issue of anti-Semitism in music? I I'm not I'm not quite sure I buy the idea that Wagner's anti-Semitism isn't front and center. I mean, we sure. wrestle <laughs> sure. with you know we wrestle with it. It is um, we wrestle with we hate you know Va uh, Bernstein said I hate Wagner but I hate him mm -hmm. on my knees, you know, yeah. like, and, and he wasn't the only one to have to have, have to have to have to confront this horrible contradiction that the, the maker of this exquisite artwork was kind of a shitty guy, you know, I mean, yeah. like a really, really bad guy um, in terms of his ideology, in terms of his race hatred. Um, you know, it's, um, I, 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 I'm not, I, I'm unaware. I mean, I knew that Farrakhan played the violin. I've never heard him. I don't know that he's, you know, like, I don't know that he's the Wagner of violinists in sure, terms of, sure. like, I mean, th here's the thing about cancellation. Like, I think that one of the, you know, there, there are certain, there are certain cancellations that are, I think, essential and important and um, that we must support to protect people in the moment. You know, if, mm -hmm. if there's a conductor and he is, um, and he is, using his position to extract sexual favors from the people who are dependent upon him, that has to be put to an end immediately, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think that's that's something we could all agree on. Right. Um, um, if there's a composer who's been dead for 150 years and his music is life-changing and has affected everything that's come after and and when when i listen to it i find myself transported to places that virtually no other composer can go he's that powerful um then we have to start 
thinking in terms of cancellation about self-harm. How much of it is, how much are we harming ourselves by turning away from it? I don't know how much I would harm myself by never listening to the, you know, the Kreutzer Sonata as performed by Louis Farrakhan. That's, you sure. know, like, <laughs> that's what would be my only response to that, that comparison. What more people are beginning to call the Bridge Tower Sonata for the record in, in my experience. And <laughs> oh, awesome. So, you know, Yes. Yeah, we we've we've touched on the way Wagner's uh, music has you know impacted culture well beyond opera houses and and concert halls to a degree. Your piece, this essay, did the same thing for me in the way some of these points touch on other issues outside of music, and I chose a, a few of them to uh, kind of dive into a little bit. First and foremost, uh, what I what I love telling people about uh, my relationship with Wagner's music. I don't spend a lot of time with it, but years. Years ago, on a really intense LSD trip, as the sun was rising, it looked so beautiful that if I stepped out onto my balcony, I was afraid that I would burst into flames like a like a vampire. All of these crazy thoughts were happening in the midst of um, the conclusion of Gotterdammerung on the radio, and I'm not sure how that happened. What <laughs> you know, dr drugs are interesting, but you know that that's always what I uh, think about when I think about Wagner, and I really appreciated your um, admitting or, or saying that uh, cannabis was a part of your experience, specifically uh, when revisiting Lohengrin, I, I believe. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about that experience? And if there were, you know, thoughts that uh, were inspired by that experience on the intersection of Wagnerian music and Wagnerian ideas and uh, drug use? Well, I mean, first I have to blame Alex Ross because he put together all of the, you know, throughout the book, there are all of these places where, you know, Nietzsche compares the experience of listening to Wagner to taking hashish. Baudelaire mm -hmm. compares it to opium. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's a, it is, it is such a transformative experience that with or without the drugs, that's what you reach for. You reach for the yeah. mind altering experience and drugs are sort of an easy analogy. Um, and I also make a fantastic combination. <laughs> I suppose it can make a dangerous one. Um, sure. But yeah, no, I, I thought, okay, well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take some, uh, some, eat some hash and then listen to, and then, and then take in the Lohengrin and, um, and one of the things that um, that cannabis does is that it plays with your perception of time. And that also happens right. to be what Wagner is doing in the prelude to Lohengrin. Mm -hmm. It is so distended. It is so expanded over. Um, it, he, he takes a phrase and, and, and the note values are so long and you you finally get to the end of it and you think that the prelude must be over, but then a noise, another voice comes in and you realize that you are at the beginning of a contrapuntal, like some kind of a fugue. And then, and then you get a sense of space expanding really dramatically. And you start thinking things, the kind of things that I think when I listen to Messiaen, I talk about this right. in the, you know, whose, whose entire oeuvre is about time, the quartet for the end of time, you know, um, um, praise for the eternity of Jesus, all these things about, uh, ab about the way that divinity and mortality contrast in our experiences of time. And, and that really 
um, that that that's precisely what happened, um, you know, in that experience of of encountering Lohengrin, uh, the Lohengrin prelude, which wasn't probably wasn't the very first time I had heard it. I'm sure I had heard it in college, but it sure. was as if I had heard it for the first time, and it was a, a, a religious experience, as as close as I get. It really is as close as I get, or as close as I can imagine getting. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's just, just really phenomenal. What I can't help but to think about is, you know, when that opera in particular was staged initially, it was a different world when we're talking about the special effects and the maybe even some of the concepts that, you know, humans today are used to taking in. It just seems to me that if we're going to give this music a chance, you know, even specifically uh, that work, some sort of, you know, help. <laughs> some 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 sort of lubrication might uh, be a means of getting to the artistic space that Wagner was exploring um, and helping us separate all of that from again these stories and the and the reputation that he's uh, fostered over the centuries over the decades at least when it when you know and the other thing that I'm thinking about right now again in connecting the outside world in i, I appreciated the story of uh deborah Voigt. i hope i'm um, pronouncing uh, her name i correctly, think she but... says voight i Voigt. i'm sure of it because i've i've listened to her be introduced at the met many times yes it's deborah voight yeah deborah voight okay yeah uh, the you know the the situation you know and how that connects to uh, Wagner is one thing, but that story in itself is one that I feel like lots of folks are just completely unaware of. And you know, of course, we can't help but to think I can't help but to think up the phrase "It's not over till the fat lady sings" and all of that stuff as it you know pertains specifically to um, what uh, Miss Boyt was going through. For folks who don't know, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about that situation um, with her. Her gastric bypass and its connection uh, to to Wagner's music. Yeah, well, she you know she made her career singing Ariadna, which is um, a, a character in a, an extremely smart um, um, uh, opera by uh, um, Richard Strauss and um, Ugo von Hofmannsthal, uh, his Jewish librettist, and mm -hmm. it's. Um, and it's really, it's an opera within an opera. And it is so ingenious that just textually, just dramatically and textually, it's one of the most brilliant things that's ever, ever produced in an opera house. Um, and then you add Strauss's music, which is beyond, beyond. And then, yeah. um, so that so you, what you have is a character who, who plays the diva in the prologue to the opera, but then she plays the diva playing Ariadna, the character of Ariadna on her sure, island, yeah. In the in the opera within the opera, and so this was the this is a fantastic role. It's such a great role. It has some of the lowest lows and the highest highs um, in in the entire repertory for a dramatic soprano, and um, and it's also a parody of a Wagnerian. I think it's a parody of a Wagnerian soprano, and mm -hmm. and and the ingenious thing that they do they uh, that uh, Hoffmannsthal does is he throws a bunch of body Italian clowns to sabotage the tragedy that this young composer has has created, and so it winds up being a face off between tragedy and comedy. So she's mm -hmm. out there and she's singing her lungs out, and then she has to essentially go up against a coloratura soprano and and sort of prove herself and it's very difficult you know like if you crack a smile in the middle of a tragedy the tragedy's over but the, right. the wonderful and the exciting thing about ariadna is that in the end tragedy wins out you know just just by virtue of the music being so magnificent and that role so she has to carry all of that and then the royal opera house did this production and they 
had, you know, the costume designer and the director created this little black dress for Ariadna. And guess what? Deborah Voigt couldn't get into it. So they fired her. It's just the stupidest thing that I've ever heard of. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like body shaming and dense and, you know, obtuse to, to, to the intent of what was, I think, the textual intent of what's going on. So, um, you know, she, she, was, she was very big and probably bigger than she wanted to be for health reasons and all the rest of it. So she said, all things considered, even though it is risky for a, for a singer to do this, I'm going to try getting gastric bypass and, and lose the weight. And she lost 100 pounds and she kept the voice and uh, her career did very well for the next several years before she had to retire. Um, but, you know, it was a case of, it was just another case of cancellation that sort of wormed its way into this because she sings the Brunhilde in the Götter Dämmerung that I watched at the Met. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we cancel things for all kinds of reasons. And some mm -hmm. of them are, some of them are well-meaning, but, but maybe ultimately self-defeating. And some of them are, I think, quite evil as in the case of the little black dress and yeah. wind up spurring someone to do something with their life and career that wound up being okay. I mean, you know, it's all very complicated and we're not God and we can't, um, we can't predict how all our, all of our actions and our motivations are going to play out. Um, but yeah, that was, a. I, I thought that was just kind of a, an, just a, an, I felt the presence of that story when I was watching her sing Brunhilde. She's a fantastic yeah. Brunhilde. Yeah. As far as, you know, the industry, all of these sopranos trying to sing uh, roles like, well, I'll say that role in particular, has that story, is this discourse, you know, inexplicitly tied to that music at this point? I mean, I'm, I'm not on the opera circuit, so, you know, my, my perspective is, is a little different. But I mean, again, would you say that this is an issue that is just connected uh, to, to that work now? And maybe not, I, we can't say now and forever, but at least now, is that story? just connected to this work I, I mean to Ariadna yeah I think yeah. so I mean oh well I, I, I think that there couldn't be another casting um, uh, conflict about this without that being a reference point um, but I mean my goodness that role is like it's been sung by Leontine Price and Jesse Norman and yeah. you know it's just like every every dramatic soprano wants to get their hands on it because it's so funny and then it just rips you to shreds and it's just the great great it's my favorite opera yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would also be remiss if I didn't bring up again on the topic of connecting Wagner to the world. Uh, you mentioned the 1903 work, Richard Wagner and homosexuality. <laughs> I was aware of the, uh, the the pink robes and that sort of thing that Wagner was into, but I don't guess I ever made the connection of, you know, homosexuality or, or homo eroticism. I mean, I, I wonder if you can speak to the significance of that part of Wagner's story, you know, as it relates to broader conversations of homo eroticism in, in music and, and, and in opera. Gosh, it's, I mean, this is one of the things that's so wonderful about Alex Ross's book is that he is a true scholar of the fin de siècle. I mean, he knows literature, he deeply knows this literature. Think writers I've never heard of, queer writers that I'd never heard of, um, mm -hmm. works like that, Richard Wagner and homosexuality being written in 1903. That's kind of mind-blowing to me. I tend to think of homosexuality as even the word was hot off the press, right? It had just mm -hmm. been coined 20 or 30 years earlier. And so, um, and, you know, it, one of the, and so one of the really lovely passages in the book and and one of the reasons that you know I, I think that we have to at least for those of us who are queer we 
have to realize that Wagner is indispensable because he meant, his music meant something to queer people, was a kind of code word. Um, um, you know, there was a, a quiz, I think, in that book or adjacent to it, um, you know, do you consider yourself, you know, or do you think you might be a Uranian, which is, or an invert, right. which is the, you know, the dated terms for, for gay. And, uh, you know, one of the questions on the questionnaire was, are you inordinate? inordinately fond of the music of Richard Wagner. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just like one of these pop, you know, like psych, pop psych quizzes that you take on the yeah. Um And, and, it, and it, you know, it's not just, it's not just the queer angle. Um, he, he really fleshes it out um, in terms of, um, you know, his section called Black Wagner, his section called Feminist Wagner, his section um, called Jewish Wagner. Um, there, there was a reason. It wasn't, it wasn't just the extraordinarily high quality of the music, but there was something about these stories that Wagner was telling. Because Wagner wasn't just a composer. He was writing all of his librettos. Like he imagined, mm -hmm. you know, these things came fully out of his own head. And, you know, I have my own my own feeling about like whether or not that was always the best idea. Like, I think that he should have done, done what Strauss did and got himself a good Jewish librettist like Hoffmannsthal and they would, they would be better operas. But with, they're the operas that we have and they had the effect that they had. And there are so many, you know, there's so many questing outsiders in these operas. Um, there are so many, you know, and, and Alex Ross does a really wonderful job of sort of breaking down why were these works so important to people who found themselves at the margins of the society in which they lived. You know, the, the figure of the wandering Jew. Why is mm -hmm. that, um, you know, why is that sort of recur throughout um, works like Tannhäuser and Parsifal? And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and makes it so yeah. resonant, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, and, and thinking about all of these connections that uh, Wagner has to conversations that are still happening today, I feel like sometimes we take for granted uh, the why behind Wagner as the anti-Semite, you know, why that is still the principal conversation. Um, what is, you know, what's the what's the answer to why we continue to say that and think of Wagner that way? What is the, you know, the general consensus on why anti-Semitism is connected to Wagner and his music? Is it a specific event? Is it a specific piece of writing? What 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 do folks automatically go to to the person not familiar with this legacy at all and trying to make the point of Wagner's anti-Semitism? Uh, well, it's his own damn fault. I mean, he wrote a, he wrote a, a piece called um, Jewishness and Music, and he wrote it anonymously, and it appeared in some, you know, uh, specialist magazine, and 500 people read it. And then he dusted it off at the height of his career and published it under his own name and uh, made it meaner. And the, and the calumnies um, in there are so revolting. Um, and he talked, you know, the way that he talks about Jews, the way that he talks about the only possible salvation for the Jew is to um, undergo a process of Untergang. And Untergang is, you know, subject to a lot of controversy, what he meant, what he meant by it, but it essentially means a going under or a going down. It can be translated as annihilation. And so people think, oh, okay, well, he's, you know, he, he's, he's laying the groundwork for his most fervent followers um, political political followers to come in the next century would be the Nazis, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know so it's it's impossible you can't forget it you know it's um, 
it's a stench that that sort of follows even these yeah. transcendent experiences and it's really awful um it's not you know there's 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 no getting around it and there's um there's no ex- there's no excising it from him, mm-hmm. from the work, from um, it, it's just the eternal problem. Um, there are other things that are important to remember, like the fact that he, you know, I, I mean, Jewishness in music was essentially, he was going after Mendelssohn and Meyerbeer, who had supported his career, right? You know, but yeah. they were still more yeah. popular and people were listening to them. And so he went after them in this pamphlet. Um but you know, then later he goes to London and uh, and you know programs Mendelssohn's Hebrides Overture. He was still championing this championing this work that he had uh, that he had um, slandered or libeled yeah. in the press. Um, yeah. So there's that. There's the fact that um, uh, you know so many of his collaborators and so many of his conductors and his singers were Jews. And so, yeah. and, you know, there there are black sopranos who made big debuts at Bayreuth, um, and Cosima, who was no less racist than her husband, took care of them and sheltered them sure. and supported them. And, and you know, it's uh, I mean, anti-Semitism and I think all racism is such a bizarre mental disorder, right? And you know, because because it, it, and, and we keep in Harvey Milk's thing about homosexuality was like if everybody would just come out then right. homo- homophobia would clearly just go away because people would right. see that all of these fantasies that they well I think that's not true because Wagner's uh, Wagner's life was filled with Jews he knew plenty of Jews and he worked with them and he honored their work and he tried to get them to get baptized and they said screw you you know I'm ordering right. kosher my father's <laughs> coming to town you know and 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 they reached a detente over that um I don't know. This is such a vexing topic that I feel like I'm talking myself in circles, but it's more complex than it might seem, but it is also just unutterably dreadful. The things that he wrote about Jews and and we're stuck with them. Yeah. What role do you think Wagner's place on the timeline uh, plays in this continued legacy? If Wagner were around, you know, in let's say 10 years ago and tweeted something, you know, that would have you know, arguably actually canceled him or, or maybe it wouldn't have, you know, I, one of the things that I think about is, you know, the, the, the vagueness, the smokiness behind some of these stories, you know, we learn the music before we learn the stories. Do you think a more uh, contemporary placement of his work and um, his writings would have been more detrimental than, yeah. you know, than, yeah, you think so? Yeah. Okay. I think, I think if, if he were a, um, a mid or to late 20th century, composer um he would have been shut down um and you know i have mixed feelings about that because i want to see anti-semites and racists you know be shown the door um and but the idea of having lost out on those 10 or 11 operas is heartbreaking yeah you know so so that i mean again this gets back to my this gets back to my ambivalence about cancellation um you know, I we we have to stand up for our values, and we have to stand up for uh, for equality and respect and cosmopolitanism and anti-nationalism and all of these things. Um, and when a person possessed of unbelievably magical gifts is the person spewing those kinds of hateful ideologies, we run the risk. Or or someone like James Levine, who right. is alleged to have have beh- behaved in atrocious, damaging, 
um, horrible ways to the people around him. I mean, some some really guilty part of me is grateful that he wasn't caught earlier because mm. we wouldn't have had the 50 years of exquisite music that came out of his tenure at the Met. And I feel terrible. That's that, I'm, that's a confession. I'm not giving you a statement of belief. You know, if yeah. my statement of belief is that he he should have been caught. The, the 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 board of the Met knew what was going on, and they should have acted on it. And and they all have this. They they have this shame on them forever. Um, but you know, the part of me that loves his the, the the music that he produced and the and the and the theater that he produced in that opera house for forty years is. Um, it's just like, oh, what you know? What would American cultural life have been if if he had been hauled off to jail at the age of twenty nine? Right, right. One of the arguments that you make in your essay is, you know, t touches on the inconsistency that we have to maintain in this uh, so-called cancel culture. You speak to, well, if we're canceling this person, we then that means we have to cancel this person as well, and this person as well. Um, do you see that as the principal argument, you know, with, with everything we've talked about in mind, the principal argument for keeping Wagner in the opera house? We can't cancel him because we would have to cancel half of Western classical music. Oh, yeah. So it was sort of a slippery slope. I kind of see it the other way around. Like, I kind of see like he's the he's the utmost point of it. He's not the he's not the 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 um, sort of borderline case, he's the ultimate case. Like, mm -hmm. in, in, you know, I create this character of the ethicist who keeps pestering right. me. I'm at the, you know, trying to appreciate these operas. And he comes at me, he says, hey, you know what this guy's doing behind the scenes? You know, the, the people he's harassing, are you aware of this? And I, I, and I say, okay, fine, cancel him. And I say, well, who are you going to replace him with? You know, this conductor has 11 accusers. This this conductor has more. Um, you know, so, okay, cancel them too. And then the ethicist says, okay, what about Lenny Bernstein? And, you know, mm -hmm. Lenny Bernstein, as far as I know, is never accused of sexual harassment, but he stuck his tongue down his daughter's throat repeatedly. That's yeah, that was a story I didn't know. Yeah, well, that's in her autobiography, right? You know, that's in black and white. So, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to cancel Lenny Bernstein? So I'm thinking about, okay, so if we cancel Lenny, then we have to cancel West Side Story. Are we ready to cancel West Side Story? <laughs> you know, and then, but I also see, yeah. I see where this is going. And the next guy is Wagner. Right. That's that's what that the, that little bit in the piece is like just thinking about this. Yes, there is this continuum of bad behavior and bad politics and bad ideology and racism and homophobia and sexism and all the rest of it. And, you know, and 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 it's all a continuum. There's a continuum of self-preservation that we mm -hmm. as a society has have to enforce better behavior and 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 better respect for one another and we also when we're dealing with geniuses of this caliber we also are at risk of harming ourselves and harming the culture mm -hmm. and and there are no easy answers this is just one of the most i call it you know <laughs> I, I, there's a part part in the essay where i say maybe that you know the clearest fingerprints of god on Lohengrin are the construction of such an elaborate glue trap for the moral glue trap for the jewish people mm -hmm. and that glue trap i think exists for all of us on the issue of cancellation well, let's pretend that we can get to the, the point in our artistic discourse just as a society where we are actually separating art from artists. We're really just paying attention to the music and what the person did is is peripheral. There's still the issue of the and I'm trying to find the right word, just the breadth 
of the work, the length of the works, the depth of these works. And, you know, for many audiences today, you know, especially those of us who are used to watching 30 second TikToks, a multi hour opera is a lot to deal with. And in the essay, you even make the point that folks back in the 30s and 40s were in the opera houses falling asleep as well. I mean, well, should, should we that. not take that as a cue? <laughs> that, that story was actually Albert Speer was was uh, was noticed, you know, because there was they did a Meistersinger, which is the longest opera mm-hmm. in the standard repertory. <laughs> I I got nothing out of Meistersinger. That was dreadful, and that and and it was Hitler loved it, and the, all the Nazis loved it because it's the one where the politics really, you know, there there's this there's this section towards the end of the opera, Haupt acht, watch out, you know, because foreign elements are coming in to ruin holy German art. You know, the foreigner is there. And so it becomes this kind of nationalist anthem. Um, and it just sullies the entire opera, particularly 60 years later after the after the Nazis have taken power. So um, so Hitler, you know, loved nothing more than a production of Der Meistersinger uh, and uh, Die Meistersinger. And so he, you know, he, he produces one and like half the seats in the theater are empty. So you right. know, he sends his minions out to pull uh, to pull, you know, these Gestapo and pull these um, uh, uh, Nazi soldiers out of beer halls and fill the theater. And so Speer is like watching them all nod off. You know, it's like they're visibly <laughs> overcome by sleep. Yes, they're very, they're very long. Um, uh, Lohengrin's not even the longest. And Twain at Bayreuth, you know, uh, said something to the effect of, you know, um, seven hours at five dollars a ticket is almost too much for the money. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, some yeah. of it some of it is an endurance test. Um um you will my to those of you who are trying this at home as I did to watch all 11 operas in succession, a magnificent experience. I recommend it wholeheartedly. You don't have to watch it all at once. That's the lovely thing about your, you know, your streaming situation. And the other thing is um you will be rewarded. I promise you, Lohengrin has, you know, Rossini said about Wagner that he has beautiful moments and awful quarter hours. And, you know, you, if you get through those quarter hours, you will be rewarded. I mean, there are passages towards the end of Lohengrin that will, your heart will be so full of, of terror and, and, and the beauty and, you know, and especially if you watch the Met production with uh, Leonie Reisenach singing or Trude, which is, you know, it, which is worth and it's worth going all the way to the end to see her buried in flowers at the curtain call. She's she's being pelted by them. It's just one of the most extraordinary things. So it, 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 you will be rewarded for your perseverance. That's all I have to say, except with Die Meistersinger. I, I don't see the reward there. I don't get it. But the tragedies, be, be, absolutely. Beyond De Meister Singer, in, in this marathon you did, were there other points uh, where you, you know, really had to push through, where you had to uh, push away from the idea of turning the channel and watching something else? Or uh, were there other operas that you found challenging in that regard, as far as just sitting there and taking it all in? Yeah, I would say all of them. I mean, you okay. know, <laughs> they're, they're, all, they're all long and um, and... And the the exquisite, you know, kind of out of body experiences do not last for four straight hours. They can't. Um, so, um, I you know, I think that we tend to forget that going to the opera used to be a much more casual affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, until until uh, um, Mahler's uh, 
reign of terror, you know, when he got up there <laughs> and like threw out the music clubs and turned around and shushed people when they started talking and you couldn't go in and out, bring snacks in and all the rest of it. You know, I think a lot of these works were composed for a much more casual listening experience than what we experience today. Um, if you go to the, if you go to the Metropolitan Opera and you know have a little conversation with someone, uh, you know between <laughs> between arias, I will shush you. You know, like I'm part of that. <laughs> I'm like definitely part of that. You know, kind of. I, I'm an opera Nazi. I, that's not what I mean to say. Well, wow. um, <laughs> you know, it's it's so yeah. So that's an, again, that's a really nice thing about doing it at home. You can you can uh, take take it in one act at a time. There's no reason not to do it to do that. So is so is that the answer do we need to just make the opera houses do we need to return to that more casual feeling to put uh, a better context around these large massive works i don't know i you know, honestly this is this is maybe a separate issue but i've become so um so much of a, a theater and opera nazi in terms of audience behavior um particularly since the advent of cell phones i've i've you know i i went to a it wasn't even an opera it was a um, it was a Cameron Carpenter here in Berlin. The organist was accompanying a silent film, and um, and it was Metropolis, and you know so the curtain goes up and you see the thing and someone gets out their cell phone and puts it up to start videotaping the entire thing, right? And mm -hmm. and popcorn starts hitting me in the head because people are throwing popcorn at this person to get them to put their cell phone down. And, you know, it's just like, it's a war zone in there and, 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 and taking at your cell phone in this super bright light in a darkened theater, when I'm trying yeah. to look at the, you know, the, the screen or the singers or whatever, um, I, I've, I've encountered so many instances like that, that I really avoid going to live theater anymore. It's terrible to mm. admit that, but, um, mm. but, but it really, I don't think the answer is sort of la more lax behavior in the theater. I think it's, I think it's frankly more reverent and, you know, keep your device in your pocket and turn it off and, and really try to embrace this experience of being cut out from the outside world because the outside world is unbelievably distressing. And yeah, especially it, these days. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, well, it was, <laughs> it was in the forties. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, cherish yeah. these, these six hours or however long it takes to get the De Meister singer or, or whatever opera you choose, cherish these hours of being cut off from all of that and really focus in a, in a very, you know, kind of religiously, religiously, I think for me, it really yeah. is a religious experience. Well, I, I appreciate uh, the fervor and the honesty you bring to this work and this conversation. I'm, you know, I'm sure on on many accounts there are folks who just very much disagree, or you know. But you know, I, I appreciate the conversation and, and and being able to open folks up to these ideas. I'll be sure to uh, link uh, the essay and some of the other peripheral works in the description of this. But where I wanted to end, you know, I'm always thinking about folks on the ground, how can I sell the idea of classical music to the, the guy who lives in the apartment above me or whoever's uh, waiting next to me uh, on the bus stop? So now that you have, you know, arguably, you know, more experience than most people with Wagner's music at this point, having set through all of them, what is the um, opera or maybe even the specific scene in an opera that you would use to sell 
the opera experience too broadly, even more broad than Wagner? What Which of Wagner's works would you say, hey, I think you could really get into this and it could be the gateway to even more? Okay. Call your dealer. <laughs> get the get the best sativa strain that is on offer. Shell out okay. for it. And, sativa and, specifically. And okay. listen to <laughs> prelude to Lohengrin. Okay. Okay. Well, I am not the only yeah. person. Unfortunately, Hitler was another person. <laughs> you know, Lohengrin is the gateway. Um, um, uh, Alex Ross calls it the gateway drug for Wagnerites. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it, you know, and I understand why. And it really is. It is so extraordinary. It is. It is so overpowering. It is so utterly spiritual. And I'm not a spiritual person, but it. But it mimics, as it, again, in its scale, um, and and in its sheer beauty, it really mimics what must be, what must reflect on some level a divine consciousness. It is so absolutely outrageously beyond anything beautiful and um yeah whether you whether you do that on, under the influence of uh cannabis or not um i don't think it really matters that much to be to be honest So we're supposed to be listening to that high. Apparently, that's what that's mm. what that's what Paul Festa said. What do you think about weed just being normalized across classical music? Uh, it's it's sort of peripheral to the actual conversation, but I, I find it interesting that more and more classical professionals are just matter of factly speaking of of cannabis. I, I, I you love said it. he brought it up, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is you know, so would Paul Festa's advice? to listen to the prelude uh, uh, from Lohengrin a little high, you know, is that something that you would feel comfortable sharing with your more traditional radio audience? We actually have it here from him. You know, what if he's a part of the performance? Would that be a story you'd feel comfortable sharing? If he was involved with the recording, that makes it relevant. Yeah. And yeah. then you can, then you can put it on him. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, you can say, uh, yeah, when I spoke with uh, the conductor, let's say that he wasn't the violinist. Let's say he conducted mm -hmm. uh, in a interview. Paul Festa thought that if you really wanted to really enjoy Lohengrin, s smoke a little cannabis and and put the uh, the prelude on, or but not, but not just saying, hey. I heard about this conversation on this podcast that I listened to where the violinist Paul Festa says, if you want to get into Wagner, smoke a little bit of weed and listen to the prelude from Lohengrin. I mean, that's a little that's a little far reaching for you. It's OK if it is. Probably. We, we know we know how you like to play it. Yeah. <laughs> I want. I want a button for you, and I want to be able to press it when I want to press it. Okay, well, we'll 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 work that out. We'll work that out there. Okay, but but the other thing that I wanted to um to throw by you, Scott, is how uh, Paul Festa's uh, essay 
ends. Uh, it, it talks a little about W.E.B. Du Bois, of course, a very important black writer and black thinker. He's quoted as saying, no human being, white or black, can afford to know them, and, ta- and them meaning Wagner's operas, if he would know life. I think that's a very strong statement, especially coming from someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, what do you think? Is it surprising for you to to get that factoid from from this man's life? A little bit, yeah. But for me, um, I don't know. I'd be fine yeah. if I didn't hear him. <laughs> that's I what don't... I feel like too. But <laughs> that's not that's know. not saying that they don't have their place. Sure, sure. But um, no, if a day goes by and I don't hear any Wagner, I'm not writing any pissed off emails to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not I'm not completely sure. I, I have to let the idea bake a little bit more and I'll have to go through uh, Paul's essay again. I don't know if I'm ready to just fully affirm Wagner as a you know, when, when we think about problematic composers, mm. he's usually at the at the top of the list. I mm. mean, do you uh, do you still play Wagner? At, at, I know I would I would switch it out, cancel it out <laughs> when when it was up to me. But I'm, I'm sure it still comes through the rotation. Right. Not as often as you would think. Hmm. And okay. I do get some of his, um, you know, that uh, non-operatic stuff every once in a while. You know, he did some chamber stuff that was okay. Sure. And, and there's a little piece called Chrysanthemums that I think is beautiful. Like a solo piano or something? Yeah, it's like four and a half minutes. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I suppose... Shout out to Wagner. That doesn't even <gasps> sound <laughs> that that's that sounds weird to to say. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like I'm being problematic. Mm. But I think Paul Festa made some some very important points and some uh, very poignant points. So again, I I hope everyone will uh, check out that piece. And huge thank you to Paul Festa for joining us for Triloquy. All right. Well, to get us into the Triloquy, the final movement. You know, I've been going into the repertoire and finding some trills. Mm-hmm. Well, this week's trill is actually sort of a tremolo hanging out with my sister's uh kids you know shout out to jaren and kyla had me thinking about youngsters and and all that sort of thing so um i went in my mind to another composer who many of us have canceled percy granger he was racist i mean let's let's just say it how it is he was he was problematic Hmm. and he wrote a, a really cute little children's march that has these tremolos in it so let's listen to this to get us into the final movement That sounds cute and childlike, right? It does. That that that, that uh, it doesn't seem like a man who uh, liked to whip himself and wear high heels would would uh, write something like that. Is that part of it? Oh yeah, you didn't know that. Oh we'll yeah, per- oh, Percy Granger was. I mean, home covered in mirrors, if you know what I mean. And oh, I'm not making it up. You know, the, <laughs> go go read the history books about Percy Granger. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Percy Granger. We're here in the triloquy to, for for me to get my true and real law for this week. Okay, listen. I tweeted something this morning. Basically, I was saying the older living composers are still stuck on this respectability of being compared to the so-called greats, while the younger living composers are really looking forward and and not concerned about comparisons to the greats. I'm not going to name any names because I'm rooting for everybody black, but uh, there, there was an email exchange that discouraged me today and and i think i need to read a part of it here to make my point um the writer says that i do not see what relationship my work has to do with 
and I'll leave that blank, insert a black composer here. I was I was trying to connect him with another black composer, and basically he's saying he doesn't see what his music has to do with that composer. He writes here, my work is to be compared on the level of such composers as Stravinsky, Shostakovich, Beethoven, etc. Giants. I do not think you appreciate the unusually high level of my work. If you did, you have uh, would have, and I'll, 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 I'll leave it there, but the, the idea that we have to measure excellence and quality by the European standards is is really is really troublesome to me. And I think it's just one example in which the respectability that I feel like my generation is trying to push against is maintained. You know, for my second ending, again, I, I was talking about that Neil Young song and mm-hmm. how, you know, maybe all young people feel like they're reinventing the wheel. But I have to say, Scott, I don't think there are that many young people out here interested in the future of this art form trying to convince people that their music is as great as Shostakovich's or 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 Beethoven's. I I think that's a, a step in the wrong direction. I mean, do you think I'm I'm reaching there? Do you think it's maybe appropriate to to uh strive to be named among those so called greats, you know, those European greats? What is the cutoff line for this generation gap that you have in mind or have you thought of one yeah i haven't thought about like a strict number i'm not gonna put it on a on a year but i just feel like you know and um, look respect to my elders but this podcast is called triloquy so I'm, I'm i'm just you know speaking here i feel like you know it's the the older generation that is really stuck on the idea of of uh being white approximate as great being able to blend in and act and sound just as well as these european whatever composers playwrights and all of that um i feel like you know the the younger you get you know the the more free thinking you get maybe even the more radical in some cases and you get away from the respectability that i think is really weighing down this this art form completely i don't know maybe maybe i'm Maybe I'm going on a random tangent or one that folks don't understand, but I think it's really important to affirm music, especially music by living composers, as great because it is and not because it is, you know, uh, alongside these composers, you know, because I think when you when you get into that mindset, as as I saw, as I read in the email here, there is an issue with comparing uh, black composers, you know, folks who would rather be uh, uh uh, connected to, you know, again, as I've been saying, the European grace as opposed to the black composers of today, you know, their colleagues. Mm. I think that I think that needs to go away. I think we need to really start critiquing young people, our elders, and letting them know that the respectability is not here for us. That's what I put on Twitter. That's what I put in my uh, response. I won't read my response, but basically, you know, I was saying that I believe music written today is more powerful, has the potential to be more powerful than the uh, traditional European repertoire. And we need to, I, I feel like, affirm that so that, you know, we can get away from just making those European composers the pinnacles, the the greats. You know, what if what if we considered ourselves the pinnacles? What if we didn't need to compare ourselves to uh, Robert Schumann or, or fill in the blank to affirm our greatness? I, I think we need to look beyond that. And I'm sorry that there are a lot of people out here that just, you know, hmm. are, are not going to do it. Uh, I feel like, you know, if we want to translate this into uh, uh, programming, 
the escort status that I've been speaking to lately of a lot of a lot of the uh, uh, new music that's out here. We can't listen to it unless Beethoven is there, unless Shostakovich is there. So maybe it's hard for some of these composers to to kick that sort of respectability, always bowing down to the European composers because of the way it's the music is being platformed. You know, it's being mm. sprinkled in and not and not centered. Mm. I don't know. That that's that was just my. I thing. don't know. I've never been one to you know attack somebody opinions or or their own individual tastes mm -hmm. um you know perhaps he's he that perhaps the 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 giants were what he was raised on or you know perhaps uh he said the uh, the giants you know referring yeah. to like yeah. stravinsky and beethoven yeah i guess uh, maybe maybe that was his diet coming up and maybe that's his benchmark yeah well I'm, I, I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry that that is the benchmark. The benchmark should be what we can imagine, not how we're compared to those European composers. And that's just that on that. So, again, my point here, challenge the respectability and don't automatically just give the older generation the benefit of the doubt or, you know, they're right or whatever, because we are in a situation that they have maintained. Right. Let me not get into my bag. To, to, too heavy but I, I really I ugh, it, it really gripes me when I when I see things like this because they're supposed to be the leaders and I will not be led into a continuation of the, of these problematic respectability traditions of so-called classical music I'm not just I'm, I'm not gonna do it you're like Ryan Howard who is Ryan Howard from the office oh don't call me Ryan <laughs> lead, he said lead, lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. Well, I mean, that as well. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Triloquy number two, uh, I guess uh, final Triloquy for this week. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about my internet rant concerning, uh, you know, again, programming and where are the anti-racist orchestras. You've been on here for, you know, over a year now talking about someone needs to do the all black classical season. Mm -hmm. Well, some of these orchestras are doing the exact opposite. Somebody put it on my radar that the uh, Jacksonville Symphony down in Florida has a very interesting lineup for the 2021-2022 season. I'm just going to, um, you know, just read 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 what's here so for september it's mozart october bach november tchaikovsky oh look mozart again in december we have brahms and mozart again in january followed by a little beethoven and brahms again appalachian spring copeland i guess that's the the contemporary selection you know their mm -hmm. 20th century or whatever and then we have two more mozarts coming up for april and may and back to beethoven not only any beethoven but beethoven's ode to joy for june mm -hmm. okay what you think? What you, what you think, Scott? Is this orchestra paying attention? I mean, all of these panels, all of these uh, DEI statements. Do they have nerve to have a DEI statement? I didn't even look, but th this is this is exactly what we're talking about. And you can go back to uh, you can go back to like mid pandemic, and and this came up where we were debating whether orchestras would uh, take this opportunity to revamp and reprogram some you know current things or would they follow the bag right and just right. try to get 
uh, what they you know what they know so they can get the tickets sold, and, then, and we have our answer at least in Jacksonville. I, I mentioned it early in this opus, so I, I spoke before audiences, live audiences at the Lakes Area Music Festival concerts, and you know gave my spiel on the connection between Afro American music and Dvorak and all that stuff that was you know on the program. I wanted to read a little bit of the end of my statement. I, I said at these concerts, after today's show is done, I urge you in every way you can to interrogate and critique the ways in which we see each other, the ways in which that plays a role in our lives, and how that helps us appreciate and celebrate America's classical music. To the musicians sitting on stage, I urge you to be a part of this work too. Demand that the institutions you work for and work with program towards the goal of musical liberation. Don't allow our stories, all of our stories, to remain silent. So I think, you know, so often we talk about the gatekeepers and center them right. as the as the problem here, the people who are doing this programming. But I feel like the members of the orchestra, you know, the largest body of people in these organizations do indeed have power. We see what the Jacksonville Symphony is doing. What if each and every one of the musicians, Scott, said, no, this is unacceptable. We aren't playing this concert. Now, of course, there's union things or whatever, but that would be a very powerful thing, would it not? How much, how much uh, weight or how much blame, maybe I should say, from your perspective, do you put on the musicians when it comes to completely inequitable programming like this? Um, I'm not really the person to ask that because I, I see them doing their job and trying to get paid so that they can make bills. I mean, I think that's the answer to my question. You, yeah. you, you see them as just the employees who don't have a right to say anything or don't maybe don't even have a desire to say anything. They're I just worried about their I don't see check. them that way. If I were in that position, I could see why they would make that choice. Sure. Well, you know what I'm going to do? Because uh, one more time, Scott, what's the name of this podcast? This is Triloquy. Okay. So I'm passing a little blame and responsibility on the musicians. I'm just going down the musicians roster here. I'm going to um, name a few names. Uh, Carol Whitman, I need you to talk to these music uh, programmers and, ha and and get them together. We have to do better. Cynthia Kempf, help us. Help us with more diverse and equitable programming. Vernon Humpert over in the cello section, you have a responsibility. I know how much you love playing all of that Mozart stuff. He wrote some great stuff for cello, but y'all got to do better. Giovanni Bertoni, Come on now. You look like a younger member of the orchestra. You can do something. You can help us get there. I mean, James Jenkins, the orchestra has a brother. Look, I understand. I understand the the uh, the spotlight that you feel like you may have sometimes or how you feel like you may not need. I'm, I'm not going to put words in your mouth or anything. But if I was there, if I was the only black member of this orchestra, I would do everything I can to make sure that this program looks different. They would at least know how I feel about it. And the world would know how I feel about it. And with this tenure that all the musicians love so much, you should be protected anyway. So say whatever you want about this programming, unless, of course like the programmers, y'all don't care either and just want to continue this. I put some responsibility on the musicians. I am tired of seeing this type of programming, Scott, and I feel like a lot of other people are as well. If I'm the only one, tell me right now, am I the only one who, who looks at programming like this and, and has a problem? A am I just being too much right now? Is that what it is? Are you asking me or are you just... I'm asking you. I'm asking you. No, I don't think so. <laughs> that's, that, that's what I'm saying. So look, let's do this 
together. Let's 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 do our best. I'm going to um, close out here uh, with a quote from uh, the the late President Theodore Roosevelt. And it's actually funny. We had Chinese for dinner. Right. And when I uh, broke into my fortune cookie, this very same quote popped up that I had planned to read anyway. So, you know, that it's I, I have to share it. He said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Do what you can with what you have where you are. We all are somewhere. We all have something. So that means we need to do what we can. Theodore Roosevelt had Samuel Coleridge Taylor in the White House, you know, a black man back then, very rare. That was an example of him doing what he could. I have, you know, we have this podcast here. We're doing what we can to inspire the imagination and the thoughts of so many people in this industry. So to the musicians of this or the Jacksonville Symphony and all of these other orchestras, come on. Do your part. Do what you can. This does not look like to me doing what you can. It looks like being complicit and, in essence, a part of the problem. Which side do you want to be on? That's up to you. I know what side I'm on. Scott, do you know what side you're on? Do you? Do you well, are you just going to, you know, re, re, remain proverbially silent or does is there some pushing that needs to happen beyond this There's sort pushing. of program? OK, yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I hope y'all uh, are join me join us in this i feel like you know i'm really trying to figure out how i can be more intentional about my work and really get the message out there more pointed not just as a as a fact of me babbling rambling here and with the ideas but actually inspiring some of these people to do what they can so again members of the jacksonville symphony i'm looking at y'all in the same way i'm looking at the board in the same way that i'm looking at the programmers the music director y'all are over there playing this all white season this all white class season. It's unacceptable and we need to do something about it. Thank you everyone for listening. I will see y'all next week. That is unless we're canceled, of course. <gasps> <laughs> Bye.